Welcome to Game Changers Innovation Podcast. I'm Mark Ranella, Senior Editor for the IXL Center. This podcast is brought to you by the Global Innovation Management Institute, the global standard certification board for innovation and innovation management. As I've often said, you know, don't hate the fuel, hate the emissions. And if we're going to deal with the emissions, we need to look at advanced technologies to do that. And we need to do that across the board. And I could argue perhaps spending as much time or maybe more on fossil fuel technology to lower emissions is likely to have a more impactful result in terms of the carbon footprint around the world. Now, that may sound counterintuitive, but I don't believe it is at all. 80% 80% of the world's uh, energy is produced from fossil fuels, mm-hmm. and those fossil fuels need to be utilized better, improved technically, and I think that that will continue. That that whole effort will continue and maybe be better recognized going forward because these energy transitions will be difficult to, mm-hmm. to go through. That was Charles McConnell, Executive Director of Rice University's Energy and Environment Initiative a university-wide effort to address the diverse issues associated with energy and the environment. McConnell is a 35-year veteran of the energy industry and joined Rice in August 2013 after serving two years as the Assistant Secretary of Energy at the U.S. Department of Energy. McConnell's resume in this industry is very impressive, but as a participant in this interview, I was equally impressed with how clearly he could explain the complex realities of planning for the future in the energy industry. From McConnell's point of view, energy isn't just a commodity. It's far more than something in the commodities market. It's a resource for the public good that has to be handled with care for the long term. So in doing that, looking ahead in the energy industry, we can see that challenges are huge in keeping energy dependable, accessible, and affordable as population grows. Meanwhile, the energy industry has always been hard to change. Huge investments are required in most initiatives, and it must be socially and environmentally responsible too. What's required from McConnell's point of view is a skillful balancing act between prudence and making changes, and too much of either is a mistake. McConnell sees himself as working at what he calls the sharp edge, navigating between the need to change and the need to be prudent and responsible. To do that, the skills in the energy industry will be measured by its ability to pivot, to adjust to the unknown and the unexpected, to learn from mistakes, and to use the market to guide the industry's research and innovation towards a more economically and environmentally sustainable future. We began the conversation talking about sustainability in the energy industry. Well, Mark, it's really important when one considers global implications and the perspective that different people have around the world on true energy sustainability. And and what I mean by true energy sustainability is that first and foremost, People have to have access, accessibility to fuels, technologies, uh, all of the necessary pieces and parts of an energy value chain so that people can have reliable, dependable energy. 
Now, we take that for granted in the developed world. Mm -hmm. In the developing world, there's 1.2, 1.3 billion people today that are living in energy poverty, and we're going to add another 3 billion people to the world in the next 20 to 30 years. And so there's a big challenge out there just to provide basic energy. So that's a starting point, and oftentimes people just take that for granted. Right. And once you have accessibility, the next thing you have to consider is, is it affordable? Can people afford the energy that's being provided? And then maybe more importantly for companies and countries, are you globally competitive with the energy that you're consuming and using to produce goods that you're going to sell in a global market? Uh, the kinds of manufacturing and industrial needs that are going on. And so global cost competitiveness is very, very important when con countries are making decisions about how they want to move forward with their energy. And then if you've got those two things in place, then, then the third thing you have to really strive for is environmental sustainability, mm -hmm. environmental responsibility. And, and I don't mean it that energy sustainability could be one or two without the third thing here. We're talking about something that really needs to harmonize accessibility, affordability, and environmental responsibility. And environmental responsibility means land use, water use, communities that we live in. All of those uh, aspects of environmental responsibility, as well as carbon dioxide emissions, and the carbon footprint. Let's talk about petrochemicals for a moment. I understand there are countless products derived from petroleum. There's over a million different downstream chemicals that are produced in, in the world, mm -hmm. but they're constantly getting better and better by catalysts, by using data to project the ability to make uh, molecules in different formations to, to make them stronger, uh, more reliable, more resilient, all of, all of that. And then, of course, the materials that go along with that. The nanotechnology and much of the advancements in that area allowing reactors to be smaller, more efficient, and, and to be able to actually increase the productivity in the petrochemicals industry. And then I think in electric power, the thing that everyone's talking about is what is that carbon dioxide emissions what is that carbon footprint of the energy that's being produced and of course you have a lot of efforts that's going on in the renewables area and that's a big global trend and it's different around the world but it's a strong trend we continue to have the opportunities to for transmission and and the efficiency of of actually transmitting the energy from the production to the consumer Right. And then, of course, there's the overwhelming concern that as the developing world wants more and more energy, they're going to continue to use coal and natural gas, and they're going to continue to make more energy, and that carbon footprint will be there. And so I think we're seeing a, a, a need for technical advancements in fossil fuels, not just in renewables, but in fossil fuels to make that carbon footprint smaller, and whether that's uh, carbon dioxide emissions from a coal-fired power plant, or whether it's methane emissions in the production of natural gas. Mm -hmm. So I think across the board, uh, depending on where you are in the world, those are really the three markets that are, that are being most impacted. I'm uh, 
interested uh, in your uh, talking about data being so so important. Um, do you have a, a a little example you can share with us about some some really interesting use of data to make things more efficient? Well, well, let's just take an example of of the Bakken oil fields in North Dakota. Mm -hmm. I think everybody's heard about the Bakken and how it's been a game changer, and North Dakota has gone to the second or third most uh, oil production state in the country. Uh, it's it's a, just a remarkable transition, and it's because of the fact that hydraulic fracturing in the unconventionals that we're using is married with the advanced data activity. So let me give you a data point. Very early in the Bakken exploration, uh, we were often seeing as much as 3 to 4% primary recovery of all the oil in the formation that one drills into. Now, if you think about that, think about 96% of the oil remaining right. in place in the geology and it's not being harvested. Right. But with the application of data and the application of the advanced technologies in that arena, what we're now seeing in places like the Bakken is we're doubling the recovery rates, sometimes trebling the recovery rates, as much as 12 and maybe even as much as 15% recovery. Now that may not seem like a remarkable number, but in terms of the, the, the change and the step change from where we were and where we're now going, we're able to get so much more oil out of existing infrastructure, uh, existing effort. It's, it's all about efficiency, right. productivity, and producing more and more. And that's why the United States really in many ways is leading the world through this technological evolution. And it's not just drilling techniques, but really data is the is the is the formula for how this is getting deployed and maximized and so that's just a small example of of the the impact that it's having here in the US mostly in the unconventional area but it's not just just unconventionals it's also the conventional oil production it's also the offshore and large sea based uh activity offshore um all of the data utilization now and that concept of the digital oil field of the future is really the theme that all of the major energy companies around the world are, are looking at in oil and gas. The digital oil field of the future. For an outsider to the energy industry like me, digital and oil don't seem to mix. It seems like such an ultra-modern new reality in energy development. So that makes me wonder, what is the pace of change or innovation in the industry? How long will it take for the industry to get to that futuristic space, to get to that digital oil field of the future? I will say that one of the, the challenges that we have in the energy area is that, by and large, it's such a large industry with such a large footprint, tremendous capital intensity, and a tremendous amount of societal responsibility uh -huh. so that when you innovate and when you drive toward change, that's normally looked at as exciting 
and and everyone does that with enthusiasm uh-huh. up to a point. But we also have this looming concern about regulatory impact, societal impact. Uh, when we make a change, are we sure that it will work because we cannot afford failure? Right. And that's a tricky that's a tricky blend, Mark, because what you get into is you want to innovate, you want to be out on the curve, and you want to be changing the world, and yet at the same time you have this tremendous burden of responsibility, mm. societal responsibility, that um, that as they say in the industry, you don't get takebacks. Right. <laughs> you make a mistake, it's a problem, and you're going to live with it, and so it it tends to stifle the enthusiasm to go out on the edge of that curve. And so that's that's the hard part oh, about innovation. But it's definitely coming. It's it's something that you see it's globally being uh, deployed and, and you see the impact of it. But it's it's probably going slower than many people would like to see it. Uh, but it's probably going faster than many people would ever anticipate. <laughs> so I'm kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth here. But really what I'm saying is, there is there's that looming concern that there's always there um, in a earlier conversation we had with Dana Wells about the oil and gas industry she talked about how the price shock recent recently you know changed things a lot so that it encouraged innovation or forced innovation where it didn't happen before can you talk about that recent phenomenon I think it's a recent phenomenon, but I think if you go back in the oil and gas industry or the energy industry generally over the last 50 to 100 years, mm-hmm. you'll see that when prices are lower, that's when innovation is the most active. Mm-hmm. And it really, it's, it's intuitive if you really think through it because the survivors, the ones that will flourish in those low price environments are the folks that are technically advanced, that are pushing the envelope to become more efficient and more productive. Uh, as I've often said, when oil was $110 a barrel, anybody with a pickup truck can make money at $110 a barrel. Right. When you're at $60 a barrel, you need to be technically savvy. You need to be capable, you need to have operational discipline, and you need to be tight in the way you operate your organization. And you need to be leading uh, in terms of competitiveness uh, because a, a high oil price is a recipe for everybody and his brother to be involved in the business. But the ones that are uh, really sharp are the ones that can make money and survive and, frankly, and flourish in the lower price environment. So when when you heard the terminology lower for longer in uh-huh. terms of pricing that, that came about several years ago, I think it sent a general message through the industry that not only to survive but to flourish, uh, you'll need to be on the edge of that technological change. You'll need to be innovating. You'll need to be doing things better than your competitors. And that makes everyone in the industry sharp. And uh, and that's a good thing for all of us, especially as consumers. Right, right. So when this uh, innovation, say, as it's picking up, uh, where do you think innovation will take the energy industry in the next, say, 10, 20 years? Um, what do you think are some of the 
biggest trends that are changing the industry? Well, you hit a few of them earlier. I know go back to the concept of data and, and artificial intelligence, machine learning, robotics. That whole theme is going to impact the industry. Um, it's going to make things more efficient and, and more, frankly, more reliable, dependable, and environmentally responsible as well because the theory of the case is you take the human impact out of it and you actually are, are, are doing things the right way all the time because of the, the data that you have. Now, the trade-off, of course, is do you people trust it? Uh, are we there yet? No, not, not yet, but we're certainly aspiring to go that direction. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that we're going to continue to see is a, a routine focus on decarbonization oh. around the world. Uh, we could have an all. I'm going to have a long conversation about climate change and carbon dioxide and whether or not it creates climate change. And rather than going down that road, I think it's generally accepted that decarbonization is something that the world is interested in doing. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that's generally accepted. Where you get into difficulties is how. Right. And many people would argue that, well, we're going to have this rush to renewables. We're going to put in windmills and solar panels, and we're going to solve the problem. We're going to drive electric vehicles and eliminate all the automobiles that are burning fossil fuels. And how fast will that occur? And you've got all kinds of different theories and, and enthusiasms around that. I think generally that's going to get uh, challenged by the market in terms of affordability, mm -hmm. uh, the ability to rapidly deploy these new technologies. That'll be a big challenge. Okay. And, and then I think the other part of it that will be a challenge is the assumptions that people make to be able to make these transformational changes to renewables, to a carbonless society that, that we're going to live in. As I've often said, you know, don't hate the fuel, hate the emissions. And if we're going to deal with the emissions, we need to look at advanced technologies to do that. And we need to do that across the board. And I could argue perhaps spending as much time or maybe more on fossil fuel technology to lower emissions is likely to have a more impactful uh, result in terms of the carbon footprint around the world. Now, that may sound counterintuitive, but I don't believe it is at all. 80% of the world's uh, energy is produced from fossil fuels, mm -hmm. and those fossil fuels need to be utilized better, improved technically, and I think that that will continue. That, that whole effort will continue and maybe be better recognized going forward because these energy transitions will be difficult to, mm. to go through. But the assumptions that people make about the value chain to support the changes that we're walking into, battery technology and material technologies and all of the things that, that people assume will be in place mm -hmm. so that all of these changes can happen, in fact, that's going to be more and more a challenge as people look, look forward to, to realize that maybe some of these assumptions are not proper, that they are not going to be as as robust as, as one might have expected. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to change the approach that people are taking around the world. 
And again, I keep saying around the world because it's a very different game in Europe than it is in the United States, than it is in Southeast Asia, than it is in Africa. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And all of these places are going to face very, very different challenges and have different pathways to improve the life of the people that are in those countries. And, and ultimately, uh, that's what it's all about. Uh-huh. I, I loved your uh, expression, don't hate the fuel, hate the emissions. Uh, I think I'll have to refer to that again. Um, and, it's, and it's interesting how easy it is, relatively speaking, to transport things like petroleum or uh, you know, utilize it compared to some other kinds of energy. Um, and I know in a previous conversation, we talked about uh, you know, the industry blind spots in the supply chain for alternative energy. And uh, I think you mentioned mining as an interesting example of, of one of those blind spots. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I, I mean, it, this is a, a great example, Mark, of an expectation and people uh, often refer to it as magical thinking about what the future is going to look like. And the future is going to be one that's going to have wind and solar and these huge batteries and everything will be fine and dandy just as it is today because we've come to expect resilient, reliable electric power produced Mm -hmm. uh, in the world that we live in. You flip on the switch and the lights are there. Now, that's not true everywhere in the world, but certainly in, in, in the developed world it is. Now, if you take that a little bit further and you say, okay, well, I'm going to have all these batteries and I'm going to do all of this and deploy all of this technology, well, then understanding, just take one example of a raw material, lithium, for lithium batteries, Mm -hmm. and where that's mined in the world. Well, there's only two places in the world where 90% of that lithium comes from, and that's Africa and China. And so now we're going to need to increase the amount of mining by, at a minimum, tenfold and maybe as much as 20-fold to be able to make enough of that raw material to put into all these batteries that people are talking about. As you might imagine, McConnell had a lot more interesting insights in this conversation focusing on innovation in the future of the energy industry. In our next podcast, we'll be continuing this conversation and focusing especially on McConnell's recent work at Rice University. We'll be spending a good amount of time talking about the importance of interdisciplinary teams in the future of the energy industry, and a lot of McConnell's insights about those teams could easily be applied to innovation challenges facing other industries. Until then, this is Mark Ronella wishing you all the best. Take care.